water is the giver of life. If we don't have any water, we have no life. It's not a good thing to know that people were killed and evacuated and chased off and banned in these locations on the river because we were river people. Hello and welcome to the Confluence Podcast. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. We're a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. In this episode of the podcast, we have something very special. It's our first ever Confluence Story Gathering. Now, what's that? It's a story-driven conversation designed to elevate indigenous voices and our understanding of the Columbia River system. The discussion is framed by audio excerpts from interviews we conducted with tribal elders and leaders with our partners at Northwest Documentary. This public event was recorded on November 12, 2016, at Tamustalik Cultural Institute on the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Pendleton, Oregon. We'll get to part one of the event itself. Parts two and three will come in other episodes of the podcast. But first, we want to thank the Oregon Community Foundation for supporting the story gathering project. Thanks also to the Confluence supporters who made it possible for us to conduct the interviews. They are Paul B. and Deborah D. Spear, Steve and Jan Oliva and Broughton Mary Bishop. We begin with introductions from our panel of speakers. You'll hear first from our host, Bobby Connor, who directs the Tomustalict Cultural Institute. Next, we'll hear from an educator from the Yakima Nation and a member of the Confluence Board of Directors, Patricia Whitefoot. And finally, Oregon's Poet Laureate and member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Elizabeth Woody. There's one more person on the panel you'll hear from, Bobby Connor's mother, Leah. Now, I'll come back from time to time to let you know who's speaking, but for the most part, it's the live show. Hello, hello. Now, Bobby Connor gets us started. Good afternoon. My Indian name is Sisawipam. My English name is Roberta Connor, and I'm the director of Tamaslik Cultural Institute, where you are sitting today. You are in Cayuse country. You are in the now the homeland of the Confederated Tribes of the uh, Umatilla Indian Reservation, which is comprised of the Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla peoples. About half of our population is also of Nez Perce descendancy. It's important for us to talk about our relatives today because we're going to talk about how not only we're related to this place, how we're related to the waterways and the tributaries, the main stem Columbia, but also we're going to talk about how we're related. This opportunity to have the Confluence program in the Tomaslik Cultural Institute facility is a special one because they come with a program. Um, it's, we do programs year-round, as many of you know, because some of you are repeat visitors, but this time they come with a program that they wish to present to an audience here. And this program means they've been here before because they videotaped um, interviews and we'll be using those as the backdrop to the conversation we'll have today. And so today we're going to talk about the river in Chihuahua, the big river, and we're going to talk about our relationships to it. Now, this is a public program, and it's not typical with our public programs that we would do an invocation. But I am going to ask you to join me for one very specific reason in a moment of silence in just a second. And that's because today we will be talking, you'll be hearing people, all of whom are on 
on the audio track and on the screen who are alive. So we'll not be hearing the voices of people who are deceased, but we may refer to ancestors who are long since gone, and out of respect and humbleness for those lives that were lived in this country on the river, we just ask you, please, if you would take a moment with us to remember those who are precious to you in the past, who made you who you are today, and who made it possible for you to be here. And now I'd like to turn the microphone over to our relative, Patsy Whitefoot. Patricia Whitefoot. I greeted in you in the language of the Yakima people from Washington State. Now, before these borders were here, we weren't, uh, you know, segregated by these boundaries. And as you heard in the introduction, we were all related. We're all related to one another. And it's the, the land and the resources and the river that brings us all together. I greeted you in our language saying good afternoon, uh, shared with you my Indian name, Twapit, and also my, my English name, Patricia Whitefoot. And I basically said my heart is happy to be here with you over here in this beautiful country we call Nikiawi, from where we're at, this beautiful country over there. Because where I live, I'm in White Swan, Washington. I'm at the foothills of the Cascade Mountains uh, on the eastern side of the mountains. And as we, can, as we gather here today, we're going to be coming together you know, based on the stories that were gathered here, and, and Colin will talk about that just briefly. But as we listen to the stories, and, as, and because I'm an educator and I'm in classroom with students, I'm always saying, well, what did you hear? You know, what did you feel? And more importantly, what did you think about what you read or what you heard? And it's the same thing in our traditional home home places to our traditional gathering places such as our longhouse and I belong to the longhouse in White Swan, the Totnish Creek longhouse and to me it's almost like today as I was traveling over here it felt like it was very ceremonial for me to, to be able to travel over here because my stories and all of our stories are part of this, this Columbia River Basin just like you're here your stories are also a part of the world that we all come from so I want to turn it over to Colin our executive director for Confluence Thank you very much, Patsy. I really appreciate it. And before I get started with my introduction and some uh, words about what to expect in the program itself, I want to also give Elizabeth Woody a chance to introduce herself. My grandfather was enrolled in Yakima Nation, and his brother was enrolled in Warm Springs Confederated Tribes of Oregon. My grandmother is, uh, was born and raised at Kanita Vacation Resort. Kanita was her great-great-great-grandmother. And uh, because of that lineage, she, I'm also um, Mili Flama, which is people of the Hot Springs. Her father was James Thompson, who was from Celilo. His, her uncle was Chief Tommy Thompson. And so my father's grandfather's mother came from Cascade Locks, where she was born. She's Watlala Wishcham. And so our territory extends much further than that down to the mouth of the Columbia River as well as up into British Columbia. So I'm grateful to have the Pato people um, for my relatives as well as my comrade-in-arms because we, as you can see here, are very um, an august body as well as a wonderful group of people who will always be welcoming to you. I think that's really important to remember. Uh, 
My uh, father is Navajo. I'm born for the Bitterwater Clan. My grand, my paternal grandfather is Coyote Pass or Hamas Clan, and uh, that's beginning of well, that's pretty much ex- says everything about my Navajo side. So that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Elizabeth. We appreciate it, and thank you, Patsy, and thank you so much, uh, Bobby Connor, for hosting us. We are truly uh, honored to be here and truly grateful to you for allowing us to use this space. And I have to say that I am humbled and honored and thrilled to be on a panel with, this is a pretty high-powered panel, and getting these three people together is pretty amazing. And we're also honored to have Bobby's mother, Leah, here, whom you'll hear from in our audio excerpts later, and she was kind enough to do an interview with us. So again, my name is Colin Fogarty, and I am the executive director of Confluence. And for those of you who are not familiar with Confluence, we're a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. And most people know us through a series of six art landscape installations along the Columbia River system that stretches from the mouth of the Columbia all the way to Nez Perce Territory at Chief Timothy Park on the Snake River. We also have a series of education initiatives, and this is one of them. So you may be asking, what is a Confluence Story Gathering? Uh, You should know this is the first time we've ever done this. So if we make mistakes and we fumble along the way, please forgive us. But a Confluence Story Gathering is a welcoming forum driven by stories designed to elevate indigenous voices in our understanding of the Columbia River system. This discussion will feature excerpts from interviews that have been uh, produced by our partners at Northwest Documentary. Video and transcripts of these interviews will be archived at Washington State University's Plateau People's Portal. The purpose of these interviews is educational. And so while it's important to create an online resource like an archive, we also wanted to take these interviews to the people. These are important stories that we should hear and we should listen to together as a community. The term gathering is a double meaning here. We are gathering stories, but we are also gathering together to hear those stories. Today's gathering is divided into three parts, each having to do with a connection or a relation to the river, to family histories or our ancestors, and a connection to future generations. So this is a moment of listening, and I want to make sure to say something about the audio excerpts that you'll hear, that it's not what you would normally see on cable TV. And the intent of the interview project and for these story gatherings is to capture as many voices as possible. So we want to be respectful of the comments, but also respectful of everyone's time. So if you have a story or a question, we welcome that. This is, as uh, Elizabeth told me, an egalitarian discussion by acclamation in the tradition of Columbia River cultures. Did I get it right? Okay. So, but it also means we want to hear your stories, but keep them brief. (laughs) Just to jump in here, at this moment, Bobby Connor's mother, Umatilla elder Leah Connor, says something off mic. This is fun. (laughs) And then she adds, it's a long time coming. (laughs) A long time coming. I've done talks here at the domestic over a period of time, but I have a talk, and my talking is rather crude. But the uh, interest in telling stories about the about ancestors and about the river is very, 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 very interesting. And thank, thank Mr. Fogarty for asking me. Well, I'm very grateful to you, too, so thank you for being here. So we begin with two elders with deep connections to the Columbia River. 
Johnny Jackson and Wilbur Slotkish are enrolled in the Yakima Nation, but they are river people. They come from bands and families that never left the river. Now, throughout this program, each of our speakers will introduce themselves. My name is Johnny Jackson. I'm a Cascade Klickitat. I'm one of the Columbia River Chiefs. I'm the chief of the Cascades. I was born uh, February 2nd, 1931 in uh, Wakaikas, Washington. Johnny grew up fishing at Celilo Falls. It was a center of trade and culture since time immemorial. More water flowed over Celilo Falls than flows over Niagara Falls today. The sound of the falls was a roar. And Johnny remembers seeing in the river the Waikanish, the salmon. Where my uncles fished, it took two men to a pole, one man hanging on to the big pole and uh, one to hold the rope. So when uh, when the fish hit, the water was so strong that one would be pulling the pole up and the other one would be pulling the rope to get that fish out before he got out. That's when the fish were strong, not like today. Uh, on that island, you can see the falls were... 20 and 30 foot deep if the water was that thick. You could see a steelhead jump or a big Chinook jump, and if he hid inside that water, he went over. It was wartime. We should look at him and say, there goes another torpedo. Because they'd seen the movies of a torpedo and seen that fish go over, we called them torpedoes, us kids. We used to watch them. That's how strong the fish was in those days. The falls made them strong. The struggle and all the fighting going up, back up to Columbia. There's a lot of history about the river. And a lot of it is spiritual in the way the people believed and followed of respecting the Waconish and the river and the land itself and each other. And today, we're still one people. But uh, a lot of them say that there's different names, like the Warren Springs and the Acoma. But if you go way back in the history, you'll see that they were one. And that's what I want to do, is bring them back together as one. Now, we interviewed Johnny at the headquarters of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission in Portland, that's also where we spoke to Wilbur Slotkish, who is also from the river. My name is Wilbur John Slotkish, Jr. I'm a Klickitat descendant from my tribe. was in this area and all the way up. We're closely associated with the Cowlitz. Wilbur talked to us about what the river means to indigenous people, that the dominant white culture has seen the Columbia River as an industrial engine to be harnessed, but to Native people, it's something entirely different. Water is the giver of life. If we don't have any water, we have no life. We need to uh, cleanse the land, to you know, quench the land's thirst, because the land's thirsty too. And it needs uh, water on it to grow crops. And it provides me with my needs. And if I don't have this river, then I have no, no life. 
and I, I, it's hard to put it into words, my love for this place. This is where my, all of my old, old people are buried. And when my time on this world ends, that's where I want to be. Because the sound, even though the roar of the river, the free flowing has been limited, but it's still my homeland, my river. It provides me with whatever I need. And I will never forget that. And my children and grandchildren feel the very same way because it provides them with all of the things that they need. So Wilbur talked to us a lot about how this view of the river as a source of life is reflected in native fishing practices. And those practices were sustainable in the long term and never taken for granted. And he added that that approach is relevant today in other areas besides fishing. We had our own built-in conservation practices to replenish those runs. When uh, Lewis and Clark came here, there was up to 30 million fish in this river. The Western science has decreased it. Economic activities has uh, decreased the runs way down. And they think a million and two million fish is a lot. And I always hear, this is a free market country. Well, there's nothing free. It's always taken in over-harvest. Our huckleberries are the latest example. I got upset when I would go to the airport and find uh, chocolate-covered huckleberries was the start. Now there's coffee, tea, shampoo, oil, ice cream. And it's being utilized right now by uh, the commercial industry and they're being over-harvested. Western science and free market is, is not very good for all of our, our natural food supply. So I want to give the historical context for what Wilbur is talking about. As we all know, treaties with Columbia River tribes signed by the U.S. government in 1855 guaranteed Native people would have access to their usual and accustomed places to fish, even as they were sent to reservations. But the federal government and the states of Oregon and Washington didn't uphold those promises. In fact, over the last hundred years, Native leaders have had to fight for those rights. And Wilbur actually even spent time in prison for exercising those fishing rights. He was among many people who have fought for that sovereignty. They also include the brother of Bessie Scott, who is Nez Perce. And my name is Bessie Green Scott. I was a green. My brother's name was Jess Green, and he was really involved in fishing and all the trouble that the, the fishing went through at Celilo. So when we interviewed Bessie, we also talked to her husband, Scotty, who is also a Nez Perce elder. My name is Wilfred Scott, W-I-L-F-R-E-D, not F-O-R-D. At home, all the young people, they either call me Grandpa or they call me Scotty. And I tell them, you can call me either one. You can call me Grandpa or you can call me Scotty. Just don't call me late. (laughs) Can I take a moment to mention that Scotty's sister is here? And she knows more than anyone that Scotty is an avid storyteller. And we're going to hear more from him later in the program. But one story he told us about their family's connection to the river was going to visit Jess Green during a time when Jess was fighting for fishing rights. Well, we stayed with him a couple of times when we'd come down and 
The only place we had to sleep was right in the kitchen in the living room, and her and I and all, all our kids were in there sleeping. And all of a sudden, the lights went on, and people hauling around. I looked up, finally adjusted my sights, and here there's a bunch of Oregon State Police. And they're all in there. Where's Jess Green? Where's Jess Green? I don't know where he's at. They start running around. They were just checking every room and everybody's looking for Jess Green. And that was because of fishing on the river. They were after him. They were going to. They were going to haul him in or whatever. I don't know. I don't know whether they ever caught him or not. But the time he got done and left, and we just rolled over and went back to sleep. But them are some of the things that a lot of people don't experience or see. So that fight for indigenous fishing rights was one of the major civil rights battles of our region, and it culminated in a 1974 court ruling known as the Bolt Decision that upheld the rights that were guaranteed back in 1855. So the question for our speakers, just to start the conversation from there, what does having access to fishing mean for keeping cultural traditions alive today? Colin, I think one of the, one of the enormous challenges when we do a public program like this is talking about the backstory to the story that's being told. And so people wave the flag about the Treaty of 1855 and think that that explains a lot, but unfortunately it doesn't. Uh, That's sort of the surface of the story. So one of the things that people tend not to know is that as families, as individuals, people had their own camping sites for hunting They had their own fish camps, they had their own digging sites, and they were communal, but they were, in a sense, owned. And so when the Treaty of 1855 was under negotiation, um, if you can call that kind of behavior under duress negotiation, um, what was being extinguished when the the United States government sat down with the people they wanted to conveniently call the Cayuses, the Umatillas, the Walla Wallas, the Yakimas, the Nez Perce, um, in great summary groups, um, was that by virtue of dealing with these peoples who had been autonomous and had their own villages and their own headmen in those villages and in those families, <clears throat> what they were doing was creating a nation-state with whom they would make a relationship that was legal and hopefully binding from our perspective, but they were extinguishing our individual ownership and rights. So it wasn't my family's place anymore. It was a tribal place. And so part of the reason I think it's hard to talk about the usual and accustomed fishing sites for those of us who know what UNA means on the Columbia River, it means in lieu, I N L I E U, in lieu sites accommodated by the Army Corps of Engineers where we have access to the river and it's a gate that's marked for Indians and we go through that gate and that's where our people have restrooms, showers, camping sites, marinas can park our boats, can repair nets, and can bring in fish. But before we had those select locations of in-lieu sites accommodated by the agreements with the Army Corps of Engineers, all of the families who went to the river had their places. And there were 
agreements in families about reciprocity. So if we married into her family and they had a better fishing spot, the new in-law might want to fish where they fish instead of with his own family. But the reciprocity agreements were not, they were binding, but they weren't the Western law. And I find it difficult sometimes to be happy that we have to settle for these sites. I mean, we're really glad to have them because it's better than having nothing, but that's not saying very much. It's an accommodation that the federal government has made when they extinguished all of those family sites. And when Johnny started, I think at the very beginning of his introduction, I think often of the words that we use that are really playing into what we call the the government's game of divide and conquer, divide and conquer politics in Indian country. And it's, it's painful to watch. It's painful to be a part of because we know we're all related. Um, but he said, he's a man who's never left the river. Well, we come from river people. So when somebody waves, waves a flag at you that they come from a family that's never left the river, what are they saying about you? Do they know the circumstances by which our family left the river? It was tragic. It was horrible. My mother will talk about it later. But it's not, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to know that people were killed and evacuated and chased off and banned and treated you know, badly well beyond the Civil Rights Act in these locations on the river because we were river people. And if you're a fisherman, you smell. And if you're a fisherwoman, you smell. Because the very work you do, whether it's hunting or fishing, is smelly work. And we were discriminated against for those very reasons. And I often find our access to the river a, a comfort. Um, my mother's youngest brother liked to drive through that in lieu gate. It's ours. Let's use it. It's our bathroom. Nobody else can come in here but us. It's ours. And in many ways, it's an accomplishment that we have fought long enough to get those accommodations. But it's also hard to remember that people had the whole river. They had the whole river for thousands of years, and they had their places that their families belonged. And so not having those places is painful to think about. That's Temustalik Cultural Institute Director Bobby Connor. And now we hear from Oregon's Poet Laureate, Elizabeth Woody. Well, I'd like to add on to that with the uh, recognizing that my grandparents represented two different types of thinking. My grandmother was um, argued with my grandfather frequently that uh, you were placed on the Columbia River. My people were placed right here at the Hot Springs, on the river here in the Warm Springs, in the Deschutes. And it's really, um, it was the terrible argument they had. And he called her a Simnasha woman, and she called him an agency man. But the thing that, that I recall out of that is my grandmother and grandfather never spoke about their parentage because in 1910, 1908, entire generations of people died in mass. So there was a lot of history that went with them. And... Uh, it wasn't until years later that my grandmother actually told us that my uncle's Indian name is Yawenschwicht, 
Louis Pitt, but that is also the name of her ancestor, and she had a right to pass that name down, and that he was a treaty signer. And so I think that, you know, we have people who can you know, have many different ways of dividing us, but another friend kindly reminded me that we are also people who have been oppressed, and the, the stamp of oppression and the way that we've been taught and raised has caused us to say these, draw these lines. And I think that's important for us to, to recognize that, you know, the Columbia River was north and south, up and down, but we were free to go where we needed to go and be where we needed to be if we were gathering medicine, if we were gathering foods. And even then, you know, I think back to my grandmother's first cousin who's a um, ancestor now, Andrew David, and um, our other ancestor, David, so happy, were Indian doctors. And they kind of had their own little rules that they lived by that were part of the requirements of their individual strength. And what they reminded us all of was that we all had individual strengths that we had held and carried forward. So the treaty, notwithstanding, it's an important document, but it still has not been fleshed out we negotiated with an infant and re unreliable government, my uncle keeps reminding me. And prior to that, we worked with the Hudson Bay Company, the Queen's people. That's why my grandfather's mother insisted that he speak Queen, the Queen's English, because she was trained in that English, and she went to school with the Hudson Bay Fur Trading Company children. And you go back further, there were the Spanish. There were all these people who came up from the South. I mean, we've been kind of in interacting with people for thousands of years. I think the last 200 years have been the most difficult. But back to the torpedo fish, I was introduced, I was uh, interviewing fishers on the river, fishermen on the river, and one of them was telling me that he was at a scaffold in the Klickitat River, and for the first time since he was a young boy, he was brought to his knees by one, <laughs> one of those torpedo fish. <laughs> and he said, I had not felt that power since I was a child. And he was just filled with, you know, with the gratitude that this salmon that hit his net was strong enough to bring him to his knees. And then he had to struggle because if he lost that net, that was an important piece of equipment that would be hard to replace. And so we have those kind of stories that we remember, too, that we pass just from one person to another. And they are stories that our families hold dear, and they're stories that sometimes are so painful that maybe we can only tell them once in a lifetime. So I think that listening to the people here on the tape will be very important for the future. And uh, we're here because we are carriers, and we have shared in this together. Next is Yakima educator Patricia Whitefoot. It's real difficult to be able to talk about you know, the narrative that we heard without acknowledging the role that water has for our people. When we talk about the river, Water is very significant to us, and as I shared earlier, I've been a member of our Tottenham Creek Longhouse in White Swan. And one of the first things we, you know, we acknowledge is the role of water. And today, we, I think, are aware of what's going on in North Dakota, where the tribal people are all gathered, you know, to, to help protect water. And when it comes to the river, um, you know, as I was driving here, I couldn't help but start to sing in the ancestral songs from our longhouse because that's important to me. And because I'm an in individual who was raised in just traveling, you know, throughout the Northwest, my grandparents uh, 
Of course, we fished everywhere. When I was a child, there was fishing everywhere. We fished where the Warm Springs people fished because we had family in Warm Springs. So we all gathered at the Deschutes River during Hee Hee Rodeo. We traveled to all of these events, and so there was much sharing. And I think as we all go back and, and talk about our history and, and account the history that, we've, that we know of, we can recall when there was a lot of sharing you know, in the, you know, the lean years, in the lean years and where we are today. But I'm always reminded and I try to center myself about the significance of our life and how our spiritual life is important to us. And to me, that's what the river represents to us, is that it has a spiritual connection to it. And all the land around the north, all land is the spiritual connection because once we begin learning our songs and our ceremonies, we recognize that, you know, the river and the water, they all had a place before we were here as a people. They all had a place. Every animal, every life had a place and still has a significance to our life. And so when I hear about, you know, water is the giver of life, that's a profound theme. And I think, unfortunately, the way the world is, we forget that. And we try to separate, you know, religion and state, uh, religion and schools. But that's something that as Native people, we don't necessarily do that, and we acknowledge it. And so and I can go on and on, but I'm not going to because there's so much to it. Just in traveling here, uh, what took me back to my childhood, uh, traveling to Warm Springs, traveling to the coast to go get seafood. And so, you know... I'm looking forward to our next segment of the program, Colin, <laughs> to help move us along. <laughs> I just want to expound on a thought that Wilbur shared. Um, so, because it's not automatically clear what he was talking about. When he was talking about one to two million fish in the Columbia River, um, when we talk about the treaty and we talk about people trying to enforce treaty rights to fish, it's important to know what the population is that's behind that. And so in more recent times, um, since the Lewis and Clark um, bicentennial, two women scientists from Oregon State University um, did an interpolation of data from the Lewis and Clark journals. And what they concluded was that the pre-dam Columbia fish population was not... Um, the one and a half to two million that we like to hear in the biop agreements today in discussion. Um, it was not five million. That the pre-dam Columbia River population of fish that we were talking about as a baseline for data was 15 to 20 million fish annually. And for anadromous fish species, um, it's important to understand that level of population of fish because a lot of the old stories People talk about crossing the river when you could walk on the backs of fish. So you have to understand what that density means. And so it was really a a blessing to have um, young scientists at Oregon State University do that interpolation of data from the journals of largely William Clark. He was the counter in the bunch. And um, his data helped arrive at that conclusion. And for us... That's an important piece of data to have in order to argue treaty rights. And on top of that, to the count of salmon, just real quickly, 
all of the uh, nutrients from the salmon and that biomass of the ocean was carried inland. So we had incredible diversity in plant life and edible plants, which have now diminished because of the, you know, the forestry practices as well as agri agricultural practices. Thanks for listening to part one of the Confluence Story Gathering, recorded at Tomustalit Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon. Sarah Fox is our sound engineer. The event crew also included Karina Bennett, Lily Hart, Megan Stetzik, and Courtney Yilk. In parts two and three of this series, we'll explore connections to the ancestors and connections to future generations. After we'd met for about an hour and a half with Maya on the patio with this group of elders, and they were all leaving, she asked me, why are they not more angry? Where is the rage? She said, if what happened to your people had happened to me, I just don't think I could be so polite and so gracious. And I said to her, they know something you don't know. We're never leaving. We've endured a lot. We've survived a lot. And it doesn't matter how bad it is. The conclusion to the story is always, we're never leaving. That gives you some peace of mind. To find out more about the work of Confluence and our project sites along the Columbia River system, make sure to check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do the work of connecting people to place through art and education because of the generous support from the friends of Confluence, and that's you. Confluence belongs to us all. Join us today at our website, confluenceproject.org. Thank you.